I first met Graham Codrington, Dr. Graham Codrington, in about, must have been 2004. I don't think the business that I built, Cerebra, would have existed if not for his input at that time, his inspiration, him believing in the idea and its possibilities. And he really did give me my first big break, access to clients that I wouldn't have had access to, and the opportunity to leverage a brilliant brand that he built in Tomorrow Today. And I've had the privilege of staying connected with him over the years, and as much as I don't see him uh, as often as I used to, uh, when we do connect, we're fast friends and always have good discussions and sometimes good debates. And I reached out to him this last couple of days after seeing something that he wrote during the upheaval and violence that took place in South Africa last week, uh, a short piece that was published on Facebook that was an attempt to, I think, bring some perspective and balance to the mix to remind us as South Africans that uh, if anything is true about this place, it's that it's it's never as good as it could be, but it's also not always as bad as we think it is, and that the truth is often somewhere in the middle, and hindsight is often 2020 vision. That's not to suggest that we don't have some serious, serious issues to address, and we discuss many of those in detail. We talk in this conversation about what happened that led to last week's violence and, and unrest and what it could mean for us going forward. A caveat to this conversation, a personal one, A, I am not a political expert as much as I mouth off on these topics uh, more often than I should. Graham is and I found it quite difficult to articulate in some of the questions what I was trying to get to and, and I hope that um, I still did the conversation justice and some of the, the discussions justice. But the other reason why I was struggling to articulate myself is that this is a very emotional topic for me. I have a love affair with this place and uh, it's my home and it's been my home for 40 years and I know he said 39 but <laughs> 40 and I, um, I am really struggling with feelings of heartbreak that's the best way for me to put it I know that might sound pathetic but that that's exactly what it is 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 just trying to balance what is a normally very optimistic and proactive and pragmatic look at this place and its potential with a, a concern that sometimes that can be naive and potentially borderline irresponsible and so this conversation is really about that dynamic and how we should think about it and and how to wrestle with these ideas of what it means to be a South African in this place and in this time with uh, the innumerable challenges that we have. But, you know, knowing that in those challenges uh, is a complexity that breeds a very unique kind of creativity and opportunity. And that's also true. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, as inarticulate as I was, Graham was supremely articulate and yeah, he was not afraid to express his opinions on this topic as you'll see and I'm sure uh, you will be as challenged as I was by some of his points and uh, you know, I, I want to encourage you to engage with him online. He's very active online and I think one of the more interesting and educated and motivated voices to connect with in South Africa and on the topic of South African leadership at the moment. So yeah, without any further ado, uh, enjoy this discussion between me and Dr. Graham Codrington. So my friend, thank you for taking some time. I know you're very busy and I'm sure you're busy this week, especially. And I've been trying to think about how to frame this conversation in a way that isn't falsely 
optimistic or uh, delusionally positive and rather have a very practical conversation with you about how it is that we move forward after what can only be described as a shock to the system uh, last week. And I guess I want to start by saying that in the midst of some of the darkest moments last week, I, I stumbled across something that you wrote on Facebook. I didn't stumble across it on Facebook because I'm not on that cesspool of hatred anymore, but um, <laughs> a friend shared it on Instagram and I saw it there. And it just seemed to me like you'd been able to take a very considered and very balanced view on what, what at that moment was still a heightened emotional moment. And and yeah, so maybe we could start with you talking about what it is that you wrote and why you wrote it. And in context of that, you know, kind of how you came to think about it from that perspective. Yeah, thanks, uh, Mike. I, I think for me, the key thing here is that we have to take what is happening in the world and happening in South Africa, happening in, in society in context. That's what I do for a living. I, I mean, my business card says I'm a futurist, but I mainly read history textbooks uh, because, mm. you know, nobody can predict the future. So, I mean, that's not, I don't claim to do that. And political futures are, are ones I steer well clear of. You and I uh, famously have exchanged uh, uh, some betting uh, the results of betting because I failed uh, to predict uh, Trump coming up and uh, you you bet me uh, on that and, and won. And then I predicted uh, the demise of Robert Mugabe for about 18 years. <laughs> it was like one of these repeating predictions that I have. I'm surely Robert Mugabe is finished for now, you know. There's a, there's um, a golf adage about that where you, <laughs> you take the club and you, you, you hit the ball in front of you and it sort of stumbles, the ball stumbles across three or four meters. <laughs> and you ask the caddy, will a five iron get me there? And he says, well, yeah, eventually. <laughs> so, yeah. Sort of the same precisely. Thing, yeah. No, precisely. So, uh, you know, so what's it? Even a broken clock is is right, yes, uh, yes, you know, indeed. twice a day. So, you know, I, I tend not to try and make too many predictions. However, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, to give the famous quote. Mm. We learn a lot in history. And I think that those of us who are more on the progressive and liberal side of society tend to have memories like goldfish. Mm. You, you know, we, we just tend, you know, right now, for example, Mike, the, the, the whole world, it seems, is trying to repair the reputation of George Bush. You know, he, he's now painting, his latest book is a painting, oil paintings that he has done of immigrants. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I just, my brain explodes at the sheer arrogance of his choice of topic. Mm. And then the fact that everybody else goes, oh, and he said that, that Donald Trump was not a nice man. So George Bush must be wonderful. He's one of the monsters of our lifetime. He's one of the worst presidents in American history. And here we are as liberals. I've, I've heard Trevor Noah said, you know, Donald Trump wasn't all bad a few months ago. And I'm going, no, no, he was. He was a not only a disastrous president, but a disastrous human being. And those of us on the liberal side, because we preach tolerance and inclusion, and we kind of want everybody to get along, we want the, the rainbow to be the truth. 
we, I think, are always desperate to just look for the better nature um, in everybody and to wish for the best. Um, but if you study history, you realize that that just doesn't happen. It mm. does happen. Mm. The, the, the arc of history tends towards justice, to quote Martin Luther King, but the arc is long to continue yeah. his actual quote. And it demands that we never stop fighting. If the, the, to go back to America, and I will come back to South Africa in a second, but I think the global context is important. You know, the, the original founders of America believed that every 20 years you had to rewrite the Constitution. Genuinely, they believed that. Don't tell any Republicans that or, or any of the six uh, conservative Supreme Court justices. But they believed that you constantly had to fight. If you do not fight for your freedom, if you do not fight for your democracy, if you do not fight for social justice, you don't get to keep it. It doesn't just come, arrive, and then stay forever. So to bring that back to, you know, why, why my car feels like I'm running around history and politics without answering your question or talking to your point. But I think that it's been abundantly clear to anybody who was, was watching that South Africa is stumblingly making progress forward. But there are three or four things that are very much holding us back. And that relates to the economy and the fact that the apartheid economy, uh, which was based on white ownership and the exclusion of labor and, and the workers from the ownership of the means of production. And I know I'm using deliberately provocative language, but, you, you know, we haven't done that yet. The Labour Party and the Communist Party in South Africa, which should be a proper left-leaning political force in this country, is completely and utterly subverted to the ANC and has mm -hmm. not been able to emerge from that alliance uh, with any form of voice for the workers. So, uh, you know, our unions are completely malfunctioning mm -hmm. and not providing the, the proper political balance that you want in a modern economy. And we haven't yet freed up our boardrooms. I do work in those boardrooms. And, and there's a lot of tokenism that, that goes on in terms of a few black faces in marketing and HR and CSI. And the real source of power is still in the hands of white people. And a hell of a lot of it is still in Stellenbosch. So there's your economics. From a political uh, perspective, we still haven't released ourselves from the liberation mindset. The people who are running our country, so the senior leaders in politics, and I'm talking about the ruling party and many opposition politics, are people who were there before Mandela was released from jail. Still the same people. They haven't brought a new generation through. And the Parties that are trying to have a, a, a youth department like the ANC, I mean, the leaders of the ANC youth wing are all in their 40s. Uh, you know, come on. And then the third thing that we haven't done, and, and here when I say we, I, <laughs> we're recording this on video, and the sight of myself, because I can see myself, the sight of two middle-aged, middle-class white men <laughs> Talking Straight rich white dudes. Yeah. We just have to be slightly careful to make sure that we're not in that little bit of an echo chamber. Because the third thing, Mike, I don't think that we've done is I don't think that we have fully acknowledged the racism in the system. 
you know, racism is not whether you like black people or not. I think there's very few people in South Africa, very few white people in South Africa who actively hate black people. But that's the definition of racism. So if somebody says, well, I don't hate black people, then I'm not a racist. So mm -hmm. now racism is over, kumbaya, rainbows everywhere, rainbow nation. But that's not racism. Racism is a systemic, oppressive system that keeps black people down and raises whiteness, raises the concepts of the white way of doing things to be better and higher than. Two three simple examples, just so people understand what I'm talking about. Uh, I'm on the, the board of a, a private school uh, in Johannesburg. We're doing our, our, maybe not our very best, but we're doing quite well in making sure that the staff room reflects the country in terms of demographics and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and racial culture. And we were called aside by a group of parents a few years ago, and we were told, look, it's fantastic. We, we, we love to see more black teachers uh, in, in the school, and especially in the high school. It's wonderful. Our, our children should not be able to go through school, you know, without having black teachers. And, you know, especially the African languages, of course, uh, we, we, we need black teachers in there. And, and geography, history would be wonderful to have a black teacher in there. But please, maths and science are just way too important as subjects for you to get black teachers in there. Just please make sure you don't put black teachers in blacks and science, uh, you know, in maths and science. And Mike, these were black parents. Hmm. You don't, ra that's racist in the sense, not that those black parents are racist, but they are part of a racist system that says white is better. That black teachers are not as good as white teachers, that black surgeons are not as good as white doctors, you know, that black pilots are not as good as white pilots. And you might, in your head, you might say to yourself, but I don't believe that, except if you need brain surgery and you have a choice between two doctors and one is white and one is black, honestly, to ask yourself, who would you pick? These things were baked into us as South Africans. Apartheid hurt all of us. And we haven't reckoned with that yet. We haven't unpicked that. We're not prepared to look each other in the eye and say, unfortunately, I am racist and I'm doing everything I can to stop being racist. But there's a default setting down somewhere that I can't stop. It's an instinct and then I can put layers and filters and everything on top of it. Um, and I say that as a parent of a black child, I adopted a black daughter and I can tell you that doesn't make me not a racist. <laughs> It just means I don't hate black people. That much I can prove, but it doesn't mean I'm not racist. Mm. Um, and I've got to continually deal with inherent racism. Now, long, long introduction, I know. But all of those three aspects are what blew up last week. And I've been waiting for them to blow up for about 10 years. Yeah. Um, and that's why, oddly, I'm amazingly hopeful this week. And I think that's why we want to chat. So sorry, I've probably taken way longer than you wanted me to take by way of introduction. But I think economics, politics, and society are the things that we have to understand if we need to get a grasp of where we are and what we do next. So we share in many ways political views and we lean towards the same side of the spectrum. And for that reason, I've got to 
do the very best I can <laughs> to temper my temptation to agree with everything you say and, and for us to have a conversation about the ways in which we feel so many of the things that you've mentioned can be addressed and can be spoken about. And I know that you and I do some of this work personally and then kind of collectively in the roles that we play professionally, but I'm worried that because we lean left and because we, as you mentioned, sometimes have very short memories and because we are so determined to seek an end that translates to justice and fairness and, and equality of outcomes and, and all of the other things that we believe so carefully or, or so sincerely in, that we are also at the same time making excuses for behavior on the part of leaders on the part of business, on the part of critical institutions, formal and informal, that have behaved inexcusably. And so I want to challenge you on, on two things, and I want to understand how we can balance our inherent optimism and hopefulness with a pragmatic realization that there are some things that are just unacceptably dysfunctional and that need to be critiqued at the highest level, and that both of these things can exist together. I have, and it's been difficult for me to get here, but I can be an advocate for anti-racism, for a more inclusive and more diverse society, and a fervent critic of the ANC at the same time. And I know it's hard, like, I mean, I know that sounds incredibly obvious saying that now, but that's been, it's been hard for me to get to that place. So the two things I want to understand is... So before you give me those two things, will you yeah. use them if I interrupt you right now? Grab a pen and write them down if you need to. Because <laughs> here's, here's how you get away from the racism of, of critiquing the ANC. If you say the reason that our country is in a mess is because black people run it and black people don't know how to run countries, that's racist. Because if we look around the world and we say, in how many countries is the wealth gap increasing? Because that's the ultimate cause of what happened. Yes, Zuma was put in jail. By the way, a French president has been put in jail in the last decade, and a Brazilian president has been put in jail in the last decade. And, and I'm guessing other countries as well. I didn't do a full analysis of all 225 states and countries to discover disappointing, uh, presidents. Right. Disappointing. Yeah. Um, a lot of American presidents should have been put in jail, but whenever Democrats get into power, they like goldfish and they just forget their, the predecessor. Trump should be in jail already. There's no doubt. And when Brazil and France put their ex-presidents in jail, there were riots in the streets, right? So... The fact that a faction that supports a president that has been put in jail has a little bit of a riot is not a black thing. It's not an African thing. It's what happens. And it's happened in kind of slightly less brown countries, let's call that Brazil, and in white countries, whatever, if that's the right label, France. So you can, you can point that out without being racist, without saying it's because they're black. It's, be it's because their president is in jail. Then if you look at wealth inequality and people who are rioting because of wealth inequality, then you can look, and literally, Mike, this is in the last 10 days. I can give you a list. And I'm just going to try and do it sort of as I look at the world map. Argentina, Colombia, 
Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti. They assassinated the president of Haiti last week. Mm, okay, mm. not last year, last week. Okay, um, in terms of political uh, violence, then we can go into Belarus. We can go to Turkey. We can go to Iran. We can go to Iraq. We can go to Syria. Then we can shift across to Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. We can go to Hong Kong. We can go to Indonesia. Hong Kong's not the last week, but that's sort of just because it's been squashed by the Chinese government. And you can kind of go around Eswatini if you want to come closer to home. Then you can look at countries that are in unrest because of political and economic issues similar to South Africa. And you can look at uh, Nigeria and Ethiopia, just to take the two big ones in Africa, but there are other, Mozambique would be an example, Angola, uh, if we're looking at Africa. Uh, then you can go back and look at Germany and France. If you want to go back a few years, you can add Belgium to the list of countries that have been rioting. But one of my concerns here, Graham, off. and, and um, you wrote about this, yeah. right? You, you did speak yeah. about this in the post, and it is an important yeah. thing for us to hold in balance, to understand that that what we are experiencing is not a unique trend, uh, not to minimize the complexity of, of what we're experiencing, but that, that there are versions of uprisings, upheavals against uh, rampant inequality all over the world. And it's not a uniquely South African thing. In fact, you could argue that it's quite remarkable that it hasn't been more of a thing up until now. But here's where I'm going to play devil's advocate again, and then I'm going to get on to my two questions. We can't use that as an excuse. We still can't say, and this is where I I've got to be careful of my own tendency to want to do that, is that that doesn't make it okay. It, it's still unacceptable that we are in this circumstance and in what, this... What's unacceptable, Mike? Two things. Number one, that we suffer the level of inequality, specifically from a wealth and, and social benefits perspective. And second of all, that, it, it, that we permit it to be so, all of us. Right, that, that we have let it get this bad, given what we know and given what we should have learned in our recent past. So those are the two things I think what I mean is, is it's unacceptable that we have let it get this bad, knowing what we know. Yeah, because you see, if, if we go to the US earlier this year and late last year in Portland and in Seattle, there were major riots. They created the Seattle Free Zone. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Google it, where they... The American government under Trump sent the military into Seattle and Portland to deal with the riots there. The point, again, just for throwing global examples at you, Mike, is that we can critique the ANC and we can critique our economy without being racist. It becomes racist when you're saying it's only got this way because Black people think like this and act sure. like this. Sure, there's that zero part, debate so, about that, yeah. Well, it, between you and me, there is. But with yeah, a sure. lot of yeah. people, you know, you're absolutely right to stay away from the Facebook comment section and, and even more so the News 24 comment section at the moment. And if ever there was going to be a time that was going to uncover uh, or a moment in our history yeah. that was going to uncover the, the unresolved elements of... We do tend to go back to our most crocodile brain kind of defensiveness exactly. uh, ways of thinking. And that often that's where those embedded fears yeah. and assumptions come out. But the two things I wanted to ask you, yeah. Graham, so the first thing is you, you said we are progressing. We are going forward as a nation. Uh, that was the first thing 
that I wanted to unpack with you. And I wanted to understand how do you know that? On what metrics do you evaluate that? Is that a, a sense uh, or is that something that you've gone on these, on the basis of these markers? Cause I'm in danger of being the kind of person that goes, we, we're getting there. We're going forward. We're not realizing at the same time that we're moving closer and closer towards a precipice. So we're doing two things at the same time, uh, Mike. We are moving forward. We have the best infrastructure in Africa. Our infrastructure um, has improved since the end of apartheid. You know, every now and again, somebody will say, oh, there's so many potholes in, in my road. Yeah, but there were millions of potholes in everybody else's road before the end of apartheid. You just happened to live in a white suburb. And so now you're seeing slightly more potholes in your road. But on average, we've got better infrastructure across the whole country than we had in 1994. Our airports have all been upgraded. Our ports are in the process of being upgraded, and that could happen faster uh, for the ships. Our rail infrastructure is is struggling a little bit, but our major highways have all been redone. We've, we've built new sports stadiums. We've hosted a World Cup, and, and we know that we can do it. So on certain factors, when you look at them, you can say things have improved. But then what you need to, you then dig deeper and you say at various municipal levels, things have gone seriously backwards. Water supply is a, is a, the thing that freaks me out most at, at the moment. I, I think we'll fix electricity within the next five to six years. All we need is to get rid of Eskom's monopoly. And I think electricity is solved very, very quickly. But water's a significant issue. We, we've stuffed up our waterways and, and the water infrastructure is struggling. And so you've got this. We, we've always been this. We've been a first world country and a third world country alongside each other. The only difference is that white people like you and me lived only in the first world elements 30 years ago. And now we see both. Another sign of advance is that 30 years ago, black people were only living in the third world elements. Mm. But now a significant chunk of black people are in the first world element as well. In other words, the black middle class has been growing dramatically. And that's where the future lies. The future does not lie in any white saviors. Um, the future does not lie in the white people taking their country back. I'm putting massive air quotes around that if you're only listening to the audio version because that's what a lot of white people uh, think. It's about the middle class. It's now become more of a class struggle. And I think that's going to be a lot healthier for us, that it's, that it's no longer a, a race divide, but a class divide. Healthier only if the middle class disabuse themselves of neoliberalism, which is this view that, that it is the markets that will save us that it is the economy that will save us, that it is, in fact, the middle class that will save us. If the middle class fights for the rights of the labor class, we can build a strong country. Forget the political elite and forget the rich. Um, they are not our solution. They are part of the problem. But when the middle class stands up and make sure that nobody from the labor class is left behind, well, then you start to build the type of country that everybody else wants to immigrate to. I talk about New Zealand. I talk about Sweden, uh, other Scandinavian countries, Denmark, Northern Europe, and so on. Uh, Canada even possibly could be in that mix. But we've got to disabuse ourselves of these neoliberal principles 
um, that it's every man for himself. And as long as we just let the markets run, you know, trickle down economics, blah, blah, blah. We've got to stop pretending that that's a solution because it has not been a solution in any country that's tried to implement it. And it won't be a solution here. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. So... Are you suggesting that we should be less concerned about unemployment figures, less concerned about uh, GDP, less concerned about some of the traditional metrics that dominate our prediction cycles around how we're going to do or how we're going to be able to adapt over the next couple of years towards, you know, kind of rampant change? So we should be less concerned about the Rand dollar exchange rate and less concerned about the JSC index. But we should be hell of a concerned about unemployment. So here, Mike, you're an entrepreneur. I'm an entrepreneur. Both of us are probably unemployable in, in corporate. Why on earth did the government hand out 300 rand per month grants to the poor? I know it's 300 rand and I know for many people it, it saved them from starvation. But it then put a whole chunk of money into TERS which was given to big corporates, mm -hmm. most of whom could have funded that themselves mm -hmm. by just not making a profit and not declaring dividends. A hell of a lot of companies, big corporates that took TERS payments, are going to declare big dividends for their shareholders over the next few months. Where was the help for the entrepreneurs? Where was the help for the small business people in all of that? It did not come for the person who owns one KFC franchise, not for the owners of the KFC brand, but for the, the guy who saved up for the one KFC franchise. Where was the help for that person and, 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 and her staff? You know, where was the help for the little people in the system? Where was the massive help for tourism, which is one of our biggest industries in this country, just left to die with no help? This is actually what government is for. And yet government was more focused on handing out PPE and, and communication contracts to their friends mm -hmm. and for protecting JSE-listed big businesses, which honestly could have, could have sorted out themselves. They could have, yes, would have taken a hit. Yes, the JSE takes a hit. Mm. But, you know, we don't need government support. Deal with the entrepreneur class. And, you know, what, what happened to the youth employment services, that wonderful yes campaign, which five years ago said it would create a million jobs for young people. It's created 62,000 or something jobs so far. That's criminal, absolutely criminal. But it's because the government is focused on protecting big corporates because the big corporates, we know this, give donations to all of the big political parties. The politics is a grift to get money because the DA, the ANC, uh, and, and, and the, even the EFF, EFF yeah. get money from these big companies. And it's not just like in America, just like in the UK, it's not going to make a difference who's in charge. Now, I think the ANC should not be in charge because I think 
anybody's going to be better than them right now. But I don't think that the DA or the EFF is going to be your answer because they're in, they're in the same, they're being paid by the same people. So sorry, get back to your question and your point. We have to be absolutely focused on helping entrepreneurs build businesses. Not, and that should be the metric uh, that counts. That's what a strong socialist economy is based on. Um, not these big corporates that pull the strings in the background. Sure. I think, you know, you and I share a level of cynicism. I'm being as diplomatic as I possibly can be about some of the people that pay our salaries. But with, with the... I'm happy to take their money, Mike, and tell them how bad they are to their face while I do. Two-facedness of, of many of the corporates that dominate the, the landscape here. So, so one of the things we haven't spoken about yet, but I think is become increasingly a consideration on the radar of pretty much all South Africans, whether they're recipients or, or contributors, is the impact, the power, both politically and, and in terms of practical application, of our NGO sector. And purely by virtue of their contribution in a way that we only wish government could replicate, we've seen certain uh, nonprofit organizations dominating news, dominating the conversation because, you know, just extraordinary impact. I couldn't agree more with you that maybe the most important factor in whether or not we'll succeed over the next two to three years is our ability to start, nurture and grow small businesses. But how do you think about the role of NGOs in the, in the same time frame here in South Africa? One of the worst legacies of apartheid thinking let me credit Professor Nick Bernadel, previous Dean of Gibbs, for opening my mind to this thought, was that in South Africa, we basically created a massive divide between civil society and business on the one hand and government on the other. Mm, mm. I don't know about you, but I basically grew up, it was probably different if you grew up in a white Afrikaans home where you had direct access to government ministers because they came around to your game farm on the weekend and chatted to your parents. I know that some of my Afrikaans, uh, Mike, your face is fantastic at the moment. For those of you on the podcast, Mike is like, just like, you know, he he knows I've just like un unleashed a tornado. For my Afrikaans friends, I, I use hyperbole there. And if that wasn't your family, don't take it personally. I'm not trying to make out that everybody had that situation. But what I'm saying is that very few people had access to government levers of power. And they knew it. So if, if you were a black person or a black business person, if you were an English-speaking uh, business person, you kind of just knew you had to just get on with it, right? And so you did. And so you just got on with it. And you didn't ask government for help and you didn't expect government to help you. And I think that that has seeped over into uh, the current era where I think as South Africans, we have not realized that the government should be there to help us. What Zuma tried to do, what President Zuma tried to do, and I think I want to give him the benefit of the doubt that I think he started off with the correct intentions. He wanted to take that system of government patronage and open the doors for everybody and say, government will support you. Government will hand out tenders and everything else. And then it got out of hand as it would 
if you just open the doors in in a not realizing that there are people waiting to pounce on those opportunities and then being bought out by those people. But I think that the intention of, of opening up those doors so that the coffers that government does have are spread more evenly across society. If you get that right, it's, it, it would be brilliant. It would really work. And I think that from an NGO perspective, I think that we've got to realize that you have this potential to influence systems and policies. And I don't see a lot of that work going on in South Africa. Hmm. So what happens is, to be uncharitable, somebody gets hijacked and it really freaks them out. But in a good way, they respond to it. The South African resilience kicks in and they start this whole movement that gets going and they rally people behind them. And because they're a charismatic personality and they understand how to use social media and get a whole lot of branding behind them and they get the hashtags registered and the, 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 the NGO the sparks and they get a million people behind them um, and they have marches all over the place and people holding up banners at street corners. Then, sadly, many of them turn into a grift like a lot of things do, and they start selling merch and taking money for themselves and not being financially accountable to anybody and shouting at everybody who asks for their uh, financials. Impact reports, um, yeah. Yeah. But those that still carry on on the good path, they simply just make a small difference to a small number of people in a small community. We've got 60 million people across a massive country that needs systemic change. And we need people who understand how to make systems change happen. We, we need those people in our system. And, and I think those people exist. And I think those people's voices are starting to emerge. I think we've seen some of them come through in the Zondo Commission. Those people who were not bent by the system. Those people who have become whistleblowers to big institutions and are prepared, they've lost their jobs and they've lost their livelihood, but they'll stand in front of the Zondo Commission and, 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 and speak truth to power anyway. If we can get behind people like that, if we can help people like that to gather the resources that they need and to feel the support of the middle class of this nation behind them, we can start causing systems change. Again, Mike, it's probably easier to look at other countries and, and see it happening. Uh, not everybody's a student of American politics like I am. I'm, I'm obsessed with, with political analysis. But if you look at people like Stacey Abram, uh, Abrams in Georgia, in America, who could have basically stood and run for president herself, but decided that she didn't want to. She wants to change Georgia to turn it into a democratic blue state. And she did it. She succeeded this past year. Now she's got to spend another four to eight years cementing it. We need those sort of on the ground activists uh, that are genuinely going to change the country. And those are going to be young black professionals in their early 30s because we need that's who it's going to be, Mike. It's, it's going to be a younger generation who are. African-led, non-racial, and who bring a proper leftist view to this system. And I want to find those people, and I want to support them, and I want to help everybody to see what they're doing and accelerate the contribution that they're making. 
So while we do that, and there are those people, and certainly I think one of the things that's come out of this for me personally is a desire to understand better that landscape, understand better who is trying to move the needle on, as you said, meaningful systemic social change. But there's a sense that even the most effective of those individuals and institutions are working not through the bureaucracy of the public sector, but against it, literally coming up against a concrete wall of just a dire lack of will, I think, to support that in any way, shape or form. And I do think that it's fair to say that that is a direct result of the overwhelming monopoly that the ANC has over public sector um, decision-making, but also the much-documented and, and widely discussed conflict within the party between the corrupt and the uncorrupt, or whatever it might be. I don't know if we can say it as simply as that, but for the voter, and, and you, you kind of alluded to this very, very briefly earlier on, there's a sense of frustration around wanting to effect change and use one's vote in a powerful and meaningful way, like, like we're told that we should, but having very few options as to who to vote for. And so mm. there's these, there's a sense that I, you know, I don't want to vote for the ANC because I can't with a clear conscience, uh, despite what that party has achieved in the past and despite its values and principles and the fact that I support those, uh, I can't support the people who run it today. There's just no evidence for me whatsoever that that's worth my vote who the hell do I vote for? So you land up with this kind of like other vote just by virtue of kind of an imbalance or, or just trying to reduce power, which is, is not a solution. And even worse byproduct is just voter apathy. Um, you know, what are your thoughts about that? So this is where my role as a futurist maybe comes to the fore because sometimes you can't start with where we are now and work out the steps to get to where we want to be. Sometimes you've got to jump to where we want to be and work backwards to where we are now. I'm, I'm not just trying to play word games or word tricks. This is a genuine, called a you know future backwards scenarios. There's a there's a number of different techniques that are what professional scenario planners and futurists use to help people to do this. Because sometimes you get stuck with where you are and you can't see how to break out of the current system that you're in. But you can actually, if you don't ask the question, well, what do I have to do next? But you simply ask, where do I want to end up 10 years from now, 15 years from now? And where we need to be 10 years from now and, and I think we can be very, very clear about this. I think that the best future for South Africa will be to have younger leaders. Sure. Um, I think that the countries in the world that have old leaders are struggling the most. So hmm. I think about all the BRICs, okay? So Bolsonaro is the youngest, and he's a complete nut job in Brazil. Then you've got Putin and Xi. Um, who are both old and G scarily looks like he wants to try and get a third term. I really hope his party overrules him. And of course, Modi in India. So, I mean, complete mess, right? In terms of leadership, Ramaphosa is the best of that lot, bizarrely. But Ramaphosa has surrounded himself with ancient people. The average age of our uh, cabinet is in its late 60s. It's ridiculous. 
um, that we are led by a boomer generation, an ancient old generation who are still caught up in liberation thinking, calling each other comrade and things like that, which is not what our future needs. We need younger leaders. So we've got to jump into a future where we say we now have good, really great 40, 30-year-old leaders. And you look at countries like Estonia and Finland and New Zealand. I hesitate to put Canada on, on the list, but possibly. America's just elected. Its last two presidents are the two oldest presidents they've ever had. So again, proof of what I'm saying is available all around the world. We need younger leaders. The second thing that we need is to not be enthralled to corporate South Africa. And we need to have developed a, a generation of entrepreneurs where family members and general society sees entrepreneurship not as something you do when you have failed to get a real job, but as something that we celebrate. You know, you, you have baby showers when somebody falls pregnant and they are about to give birth. Why don't we have entrepreneur showers, small business showers, where all your friends, if you start a small business, all your friends come around and buy your first month's worth of goods and products uh, from you as a party, as a gift, as a like a labola present for your business. You know, there's a mindset shift required in all sectors of society. But I think especially in people who grew up in the townships, they, they, they see a job as the thing you get, not a business as a mm. thing you start. Mm. And we've got to change that mindset. And we've got to have a government that supports a banking sector that supports those entrepreneurs. Sure. That's not difficult to imagine. It might be difficult to say, how do we get from here to there? But it's not difficult to picture that for ourselves. And all of that requires an education sector. And I think that's the biggest, biggest shift that we can make quickly. We've got to break the teachers' unions because some teachers in this country get away with absolute murder. Sure. They are not good at their job. They do not actually put value and time into their job. I'm not talking about all teachers again, okay? This is a hashtag not all teachers, but... The, the teachers know yeah, that the way it's a devastatingly are. high majority, yeah. though. Like exactly, if we're honest, yeah. And we just have to break those unions and get the good people in the system to really deliver. And I think that coalition politics is the best version of politics for us in the future. A controversial example, but here we go. I think that in the last twenty years, the best that Johannesburg has been has been when the DA and the EFF were in a very unlikely alliance. Hmm. Hmm. Why? Because every time the DA wanted to do some crazy neoliberal ex-colonial type stuff, like just clear out the inner city of homeless people, the EFF said, are you mad? You cannot do that. And then they had to come together and say, well, what can we do? Hmm. And the thing that they could do was a good balance of their two policies. Then the EF says, well, let's just, you know, go into Santon CBD and, you know, take back all the, all the land and the buildings. And the sure. DA goes, well, no, you can't. Yeah. And, but what can we do? Maybe we can use government land that's empty in Johannesburg. Maybe, hey, maybe we can take homeless people and actually create houses for them on land that the government actually owns. And you suddenly come up with a policy, which sadly wasn't implemented because they were then uh, taken out of that alliance. But you can take even the two parties that are on opposite ends of a spectrum, and when they're forced to work together, you can come up with some really 
valuable things that, that emerge from it. And I think that if the labor movement and the Communist Party separated themselves from the ANC, I think that if the corrupt element of the ANC wants to take off and form their own political party, that'd be fine. We'd see who they were and, and they, they wouldn't last long. And if the good part of the ANC, because I still believe there's a good core and a good heart and a good soul at the center of the ANC, I choose to believe that. If they existed as a more centrist party, because that's what they are, they're a very centrist party. And then we saw the rise of, of other smaller parties and there were these this mindset of coalition, a mindset that said, I can vote for one party in one electoral cycle. Five years later, I vote for somebody else because I'm not voting for history. I'm not voting for alliances. I'm not voting for my ancestors. I'm not voting for colors um, and flags. I'm voting for the people who I think right now will do the best job at delivering what we need for the next five years. We can create, I can picture I think within one electoral cycle, I can picture a wonderful future for South Africa, led by young people who fix education, who create this coalition type environment, who are not enthralled to, to corporate South Africa, but focus on entrepreneurial development, building the, the tax base. Yeah, call me idealistic if you want to, uh, but I don't think I'm unrealistic. I think it's possible. And I think what's happened last week has given us the impetus we needed. It would have been much better if we could do this without burning a bit of the country down. But now that we've burnt a bit of the country down, I think we can choose this path to the future uh, that I've just outlined. So I am weirdly optimistic uh, in, the, in the face of one of the most chaotic weeks in our country's history. So I think that's that's a useful vision for us to kind of not end on, but uh, think about and meditate on and embrace. And I, I still find, I think there's a level of jadedness and cynicism that comes fresh after a breakup. <laughs> and I, I feel the overwhelming uh, emotion that I think dominated last week for me was just like heartbreak, like a sense of maybe I've maybe I've just been naive and maybe maybe I need to be a little bit more like cynical about this. Maybe that's the best response, you know. So it's it's difficult to combat that. And can I ask you a question in this? Because please. I like your analogy of what it feels like after a good breakup. Except I have to ask you this because uh, I mean you you know my personal history. I married my first girlfriend. Mm -hmm. I have never had a breakup. I'm still yeah. happily married to her 30th anniversary coming up soon. Love her more now than ever before. So I don't know what a breakup feels like. I, yeah. I'm still yeah. in love with, I went to her matric dance and she came to mine. I mean, it's one of those soppy love stories. It's ridiculous. I know you've been through some breakups and some tough times. Doesn't, after the heartache, however long the heartache takes, and the maybe the introspection, isn't there a little bit of relief looking back possibly saying, and I'm not asking you to reflect on your own personal story here, I'm not putting that on you, but just asking the question. Sometimes don't you look back and say, I had to get out, it was, it's, I'm much better now that I'm out of that relationship. Didn't we have the wrong picture of 
South Africa. I don't want sure, to go certainly. back yeah. to the relationship we had two weeks ago because I don't want to go back to normal. If, if South Africa two weeks ago was our normal, forget about it. I don't want that. I want something much better than that for our country. Yeah, Am I yeah. stretching an analogy too far or maybe is that helpful for some people? No, no, I think that I think that it's useful for us to think of it that way. And I certainly, I mean, I can't argue against, you know, when you're in a relationship and maybe it's a maybe it's a healthy one, maybe it's an unhealthy one, it's difficult to see the wood for the trees. When you come out of that relationship, as painful as that process might be, and you look back at it, suddenly everything makes sense. Suddenly you can make uh you, you know, some of the decisions you made or some of the paths that that you took seem you would never make that same decision again. So, so a perspective is wonderful. Hindsight is twenty twenty vision. The, the the problem with the analogy that I'm giving you is, or that we're extending, is that in this instance, a breakup is we're talking about people breaking up with their hope of a South Africa that they could grow up, or that they could, they could bring up their families in, that they could grow value in. At what point? I'm, Graham, what I'm trying to ask is, and I'm trying to be as pragmatic as possible here because I'm always the optimist. I'm always the person at the dinner party who's advocating for this. I'm always trying to, uh, and I've, I'm, I just, I'm trying to play devil's advocate on purpose. Um, mm -hmm. At what point in time do we say, like, enough is enough? And actually, I can understand somebody who would want to live somewhere else and create a life. Uh, somewhere else. And that's okay. In fact, I think we could always say that. But the point is that there's a sense that for many people, the hope and the vision that they had, the relationship that they had with South Africa, they I think they feel um, let down. They feel devastated. So let's loop this around then. I know, I know we're needing to wrap this up, but that's yeah. why I started this podcast. This may be an episode of your podcast where I encourage people to go and listen to the introduction again. Mm -hmm. Um to the first 10 minutes again, because it'll make more sense now. Because I could literally just, we could put this on a David Tennant type in, uh, infinite loop now, mm. uh, this conversation. Because where would you go? Would you go to America mm. right now? I would not. Mm. America is going after, the, now that, they, that the Democrats put Joe Biden forward, uh, and a, an alleged sexual harasser, with Kamala Harris, who is about the most Republican Democrat they could have possibly found, who has the most horrific track record, especially a horrific track record in her treatment of black people in America. She's it's about the worst possible candidate you could put forward. They are going to have a fascist next. And when you get a clever fascist, Trump was a stupid fascist. When you get a clever fascist, America is on a horrific downslope. I would not want to be in America in the next 10 years. Would you go to Australia? Australia is run by a right-wing party that doesn't believe in climate change, that the country is going to burn, literally, in the next 10 years. Would you go to the UK, which is racked with racist violence? at the moment, Brexit being just a symptom of this deep, hostile racism. The only people who feel safe in those countries are white people who don't mind racism. I'm not calling you a racist if you want to go there, but I'm just telling you that if you go to those places, if you feel that you need to escape South Africa, you are comfortable with racism, even if you are not yourself a racist. So if that's your choice, make your choice. 
whatever, but you are going to be raising your children in racist hellholes um, and perpetuating the problem we need to solve in South Africa. So one of the answers to those people, it's not a kind answer, but I think it's a real answer, is where would you go? The whole world, this was the point of my introduction, the whole world is in the changing of an era. And we need to change to this new era. If you're saying I'm going to do something for the sake of my children, what you should be doing is changing the system. And I don't think there's a better part of the world, a better place in the world to be part of that change than South Africa. Do we have all the answers? Do we know the exact path? No. By we, I mean the whole of humanity doesn't know. We Nobody knows. We've spent the last 80 or 90 years having capitalism and communism fight it out, and both have proven themselves insufficient for the future. And so now we have to find this new path and we need to do it together. And I would much rather do it in South Africa. I would much rather, if I, if I am South African, which I am, if you are South African, wouldn't you much rather do it in a place that you can call home? So let's fix this thing now. And, and what happened in KZN last week shows us that we can't just do the Rainbow Nation plaster fix, the I don't see race fix. We've got to do deep structural fixes that I think we are ready for, that I think we can do, that I think, I mean, pictures over the weekend of people doing cleanup together. It, it just made my soul sore because those are the people that will make the new South Africa, the new, new, new South Africa work. We can do this, Mike. And for the sake of our children, we must do it. But it's not just platitudes, a, a few rand a month given to an NGO. It's now deep work that we need to do as a country, and I think we can do it. Yeah, there's this, the one thing that certainly does come through in all of the conversations that you have and in all of the thinking and consideration about what we've been through is that often remarkable creative solutions can only come out of remarkable complexity. And we really do, and I think we really are, an example of remarkable complexity in all of the good ways and all of the bad ways that that is true uh, about what it is to be in South Africa and be South African. But if that is true, then it's possible to believe that the solutions that the world needs to some of its most intractable problems can only come out of a place like this. And that's a reassuring thought. It's not easy, but I guess nothing worthwhile ever is. So as always, my friend, um, it is such a great pleasure spending time talking to you. It's, it always feels like too long in between conversations. But then again, it does feel like 10 years passed in the last week. Um, but thank you. Thank you for your considered uh, commentary, for your work, and yeah, for your ongoing support of the dream, I guess. It needs to be more than a dream now. And, yeah. and that's the thing. And I think a lot of people have been living in a dream and now we're waking up properly. And so let's get to work. I'm excited. Thanks, my friend. Take it easy. Cheers. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. 
I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.